I'm Andy Stevenson and welcome to the second episode of A Winning Mindset, Lessons from the Paralympics, a new podcast brought to you by the International Paralympic Committee and long-standing partner Allianz. We hope these podcasts may change how you think and act, as well as bringing you some fantastic stories. If you missed it, do listen to our first episode with British sprinter Johnny Peacock. But in this programme, I'll be speaking to another one of the greats. American wheelchair racer Tatiana McFadden has 17 Paralympic medals, but that only tells part of her story. Under remarkable circumstances, Tatiana's life has been a demonstration of resilience, using her voice and experience to fight for change and to make a difference to persons with disabilities all around the world. Hello, Tatiana. A real pleasure to speak to you, I have to say. Now, lots of people do know your incredible backstory already, of course, but there will also be people coming to this podcast who won't. You were born in Russia with spina bifida. Can you explain the extraordinary circumstances of the early years of your life? Yes. So I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia in the time of fall of communism. So I was born in 89 and I was born with spina bifida, which is a hole in your back and your spinal column sticks out. And usually you need You need surgery immediately after birth, but for me, that wasn't the case. It took about 21 days to have an operation, and so it was practically a miracle that I survived, you know, through those conditions, and shortly after that, I was put into an orphanage because, you know, during that time, that was a hard time for Russia. My birth mom did not have the resources or the finances to take care of a disabled child. So she did the best thing that she could do in hopes for me to have a better life. And so she put me in an orphanage and I lived there for the first six years of my life. I didn't have any medical treatments. I didn't have in education. I wasn't put into school. I didn't have a wheelchair. So the only way I knew how to get around was to scoot on the ground or to walk on my hands. So I didn't know anything else. That's the only thing that I had. And the six year changed when my mom happened to walk through the door, Deborah McBadden, and she was there on a work trip. She wasn't planning on to adopt. She was just there you know, to see the orphanage and to, you know, place kids into families. And yeah, and then we met and I felt like it was just love at first sight. And my life changed forever at that moment. Now, your birth mother, Nina, Nina Polevikova, she was advised, am I right, that putting you in the orphanage was was actually going to get you some medical treatment, which which actually didn't transpire. So what are your emotions when you reflect on on her decision? I was never, you know, the type of person that was mad or upset because I had to kind of also look at her perspective and, you know, what she knew at the time and what was told at the time. And so, you know, I, I praise her because it must be so hard carrying a child for nine months and then knowing, you know, you don't have the resources at the time to help your child. And so she gave me a new life. And I'm so thankful for her because I live a life that I never could have imagined before. And I'm sure, you know, she 
prayed on hoping that, you know, I would be put into a, a beautiful family and that I would prosper and live a wonderful life. And I am living a wonderful <laughs> life. And it's all because, you know, of her. And how vivid are your memories of those early years in the orphanage? What can you remember of that time? The orphanage is actually quite small, but I remember it being so huge. And I think because I was so small and crawling around everywhere. And I remember the smell of cabbage and potatoes. That's what we ate growing up. And, you know, you had a, a sleeping room and then you had an open area for, for the kids. It was very simple life. And, you know, Natavasia, she I think she was wonderful and she was really quite ahead of her time to have someone who was disabled in the orphanage. And she actually kept me safe during that time because I maxed out at that orphanage. At the age of six, you're supposed to move into the adult orphanage, but she kept me there a little longer. And that's where I met my mom. So props to her and what she did. You know, I, I came back and I visited the orphanage in 2011, right before the London Paralympics. And I wanted to go back and thank her for everything that she's done, you know, for the resources that she had and the knowledge that she had. She actually transformed that orphanage into a mix of normal, healthy kids, and then disabled children as well, which is really unheard of. You know, we still struggle with the idea of disability being such a, a taboo, but back in 2011, she was already doing that. So she's, she was someone that was really kind of way ahead of her time. Were you the first or the only disabled child in the orphanage? During my time, yes. But when I went back in 2000 and. 11, there were other disabled children there. So that's huge that they were taking in and caring for disabled children. It's amazing, isn't it? When you look back and think you were a trailblazer, even when you were, you know, two, three, four, four years old and, and what you've gone on to achieve. And you, you mentioned earlier about walking on your hands. So you were walking around on your hands until what, six, seven years old? Yes, yeah, scooting. Yes, yeah, scooting, walking on my hands, you know, whatever, what was whatever was faster at the time for me. <laughs> yeah, about until six. And then when I came to the US, I was given a little red wheelchair. And yeah, from then on, I used a wheelchair. I mean, it's fascinating to me because I'm disabled myself. And like you, my disability is from birth. I actually have no hands. So actually growing up as a child, in my case, I... I learned to write with my feet. In fact, I'm sat here now, I'm operating my laptop and I'm, I'm writing with, with my feet. It's just something I've grown up doing. It's fascinating, isn't it? The way the human body just adapts, you know, and I think disabled people who are born with certain disabilities, their body just does things that other people can't do. Exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. It, you're right. I mean, it, it is amazing what the human body can do. And that's what we're meant to do, right? Bodies are meant to adapt to any type of situation. And just who you are, it's what it's meant to do. So it is extraordinary. And do you remember the day that Deborah McFadden or mom, as you call her now, obviously, she went on to adopt you or, or I guess you could say rescue you in some ways. Do you remember the day Deborah first came into the orphanage? 
Yeah. So she came in and she went around the whole orphanage and I remember sitting on her lap. I was playing with her video camera. She had brought treats, so lollipops, we call them chuba chuba. And so she brought lollipops and I remember just taking the whole bag and giving the candy out to all the kids there. And yeah, we just, I guess, just hung out. And then I think she was trying to explain when she was leaving that she was going to come back for me. I kind of understood, but didn't really understand. I mean, she didn't speak full Russian. Yeah. And then she came back. So that was kind of our first meeting. I can imagine the sweets were an upgrade from cabbage and potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did love those. You must have been the most popular kid in there. Mm -hmm, Definitely. (laughs) Can you sum up, I know it's hard, but can you sum up the impact Deborah has had on your life? We will obviously get to talking about your athletic achievements, but just in terms of your life and what your life might have been had she not arrived. Can you sum up the impact she's made? She's made a huge impact. What she did as her career, right? So she ran an international adoption agency. She worked under the first Bush administrative for disability rights. And she was one of the 12 authors of the ADA. So she was commissioner of disabilities. And she has an extraordinary story herself. She was paralyzed from the neck down in college. It's from an autoimmune disease. So I think with her experience, you know, growing up and being disabled herself, you know, she helped me acclimate really well and and fight for my rights in the community and really pushed me to be my best person. So I do have two parents, Bridget. O'Shaughnessy is her her partner, and she is the one that also took me to the track and helped me practice as well. So two wonderful parents who really support me in my career, and they both drove me to practices on weekends when I played sports at a local para sports club, the Bennett Blazers. So they've been just absolutely wonderful, wonderful parents. There'll be lots of people listening who 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 do the, as we would call it, they do the taxi run at the weekends, taking their children to <laughs> yeah. sports club so I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening and and nodding and and, and thinking yes you know what a great job that is and whilst we're talking about your family we should also refer to your your sisters so your sister Hannah and your sister Ruthie who were both also adopted but from from Albania yes yes I mean they're your sisters right we (laughs) love each other we (laughs) we get on each other like sisters nerves and then we love each other you compete against one of them of course you compete against hannah so you don't always love each other (laughs) (laughs) you know i think when we're normal people when we get on the starting line we both become very competitive but we definitely do have a special bond i mean three of us being adopted When I was younger, I actually really wanted sisters. So when I was 10, I like told my parents, I was like, I want a sister. (laughs) And, you know, shortly Hannah showed up. And then when I was a senior in high school, Ruthie showed up. And so I love big families. Both my parents have come from really big families. So I love doing anything with my sisters. I mean, we hang out, we watch movies, and Hannah and I will go train together. I mean, Ruthie will come to the track as well. Um, You know, I could talk about my experiences, about training or the races, and they're always there for you at the end of the day. And they treat you so normal, right? Either, you know, whether 
if you're winning medals or marathons, they, you know, they help, you know, bring you down a little bit. <laughs> and so, yeah, I wouldn't know what to do without them. They're like my little, my little rocks. So do love them. So let's talk about the sport because you have 24 major marathon wins to your name. You have 16 summer Paralympic medals as a wheelchair racer, plus plus one winter Paralympic medal as a cross-country skier, which I, I'll come on to later. But when it comes to the athletics, you you had to fight to be allowed to compete as a youngster, didn't you? I did, yes. I had to fight for the right to be on the high school track team. You know, and coming back from an Athens Paralympic Games, I was entering into high school when I finished Athens. And it was just, you know, a shock to me that I was discriminated against as someone, you know, a, with a physical disability. I wasn't given a uniform. I was denied the right to run alongside of the other athletes, being the only female wheelchair racer. And I thought, this is not how it should be. You know, we're, we're setting the, the stage of saying, okay, well, we're teaching high schoolers and everyone in this community that, oh, it's okay to discriminate someone with a physical disability. You know, they're not letting her on the track. So I guess that's the norm, right? And so I wanted to do something about it. You know, I thought this is not okay. This is not how I want to live my high school career. This is not what I want my sister to go through and then generations after that. So I sued for no money, no damages, but for the right for the opportunity to participate in high school sports. And I would have to say it was the hardest, hardest battle as a high schooler to go through for four years. We won in Howard County. We won. Then we took it to state level and then last it was federal. Federal law didn't happen until I was in college. I think a freshman or sophomore in college. But as a student going through high school, this was really, really tough. You know, I was beyond mature, above my years, trying to fight this battle and having high school students around me that didn't really understand what was happening or what was going on or why I was doing this. And it was tough. I was Really, it was bullied a lot in high school. I remember coming home and just crying all the time after track meets. I would get booed at track meets. I would have parents coming up to me. And even the teammates on the distance running team would, they wrote letters to the newspaper saying I had clubs for my own kind and I don't really belong. But it's the education piece. You have to teach people about disability and you have to obviously teach people about the sport, you know, wheelchair racing. A racing chair doesn't have any gears. How fast I want to go is how fast my arms are going to push the chair. And so I think it's just a misconception and, and education, right? So that's what I had to do. I had to provide that education and I was willing to to do it. And I wanted to do it because the time was the time was now. And it's something I'm so happy that I did because the reason why it passed through so law so quickly, right? Laws take years and years and years to do. But the reason why it passed so fast is because it was the right thing to do. And now it's forever. And now it cannot be taken away. And I just hope that any high schooler with a physical disability, that if they want to join high school sports, that they absolutely can. 
I mean, that is an unbelievable legacy. That that must make you feel almost as proud or perhaps more so as, as all your medals, you know, standing up for what you believe and making a difference to people now, you know, children, teenagers now who are probably taking part in sport at high school uh, or schools in other countries around the world, disabled children who who are possibly taking part in those events without realising that it's you that made the changes to enable them to do so, if you see what I mean. But that was my my goal and purpose, you know, whether if they know who did it or not, it's something I wanted to do. Sports is so important to me. And I realized that, wow, if it's so important to me, it could be important for the next person. And everyone should be allowed to play, right? Everyone should have that opportunity because it's about building a community. That person doesn't need to go to the Paralympics. They don't need to, you know, run marathons or anything like that, but it, it allows them to be part of something at that moment. And it teaches the people in the around in that community and it educates them that, oh, this disabled person's just like you. <laughs> They're not really that any different. And when you teach high schoolers that, then when they get older, if someone comes in with a disability, they'll hire them, right? They say, oh, well, I had a person on my sports team or in my club in high school who had a disability and it was fine. Like they're just like anybody else. So it's it's the whole growth and education part of it. It's uh, incredible to to hear about about those those efforts and the successes you had off the track, if you like. It reminds us that having an inclusive mindset like yours can really change society. But I guess also that the law changes and activism are only the first steps. Then you have to educate and, and wait, I guess, for the cultural change to catch up. And in amongst all of this, as a 15-year-old, you go and compete in the Athens Paralympics what was that like to arrive in Greece and be surrounded by elite sports people with disabilities? Yeah, so um, in Athens, it was my very first international competition experience ever. So I went in as a 15-year-old, like I was so excited. I was nervous. I didn't really know any of the competitors. I kind of knew how to, you know, warm up properly from my local para sports coach and just kind of went in and I just had fun. You know, I, I knew that I wanted to, you know, make it to the finals and hopefully come home with a medal. But I knew that I just needed to get off at the start really quick and just push my little heart out. And I had fun, but I really didn't know a, a lot about myself and and really a lot about the sport and the technique of it. The Paralympics at that time weren't really recognized. So the stadium was not packed in Athens. The biggest crowd was my family. And uh, being on that podium, I thought, wow, I want to become the best in the world. I, I want to win all these medals because if I win all these medals and I can have a voice, right? And I want the Paralympics to be something more than this. I want to educate about the Paralympics in my own country. I want to educate about disability in my own country. And of course, globally as well. Because when I came home after Athens, 
it wasn't celebrated like the Olympics. People didn't even know the Paralympics even happened. And at that time, you know, I thought, oh, well, it kind of didn't feel like a big deal like it is today, right? You just kind of went there, you competed, you came home. Equal pay didn't even exist at the time. And so I was really fortunate to have a few sponsors at that time, but it's not like what it is today. I just thought, wow, I want to do something. And the only way to do that was to become the best. And so I worked really hard in Beijing. The games were unbelievable. The crowds were amazing. I won silvers and bronze at those games. But, you know, I thought, okay, well, (laughs) I want to do even better. I was really happy to win my first gold in London. And London did such a beautiful job of paralleling the sport. Media really grew. Sponsorships grew like no other. And the important key was saying Olympics and Paralympics, making it the OP and changing that language. And now heading to Tokyo, we had a really big shift in the United States. We renamed our organization to the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So when people are saying it, they say the word Paralympics. When it's in writing, people see the word Paralympics. And I finally get equal pay going into Tokyo. (laughs) So this is really exciting. After 16 years of my career, I am going in with equal pay. So I didn't think it would happen in my career. I was just kind of hoping. But a lot of athletes before me have done so much work and you feel for them. But the sport is definitely growing. It's an exciting time to be an athlete. Just going back to Athens, I hope that the first thing you did with your medals going home was take them to the athletics clubs and and shove them in the faces of the people who'd booed you a couple (laughs) of years before or written letters saying that you shouldn't be competing. I hope you did that. (laughs) (laughs) Show us your medals. Come on. No, I did not do that. (laughs) You're far too, far too nice, far too polite. (laughs) But I mean, on, on a serious point, though, by winning medals, I guess that then did obviously help your campaign, I guess, to to get the access to to school sports and it gave you a certain standing in in the sport and in America to say look this is what you get when when you allow disabled people to compete on an even playing field definitely that was my thought i know it's probably not everyone's thought but you know i think winning my first two medals in athens it definitely gave the the buzz a little bit more um by saying oh wow you know we have an athlete who won Paralympics for our country. Now she can't even race in high school. So it definitely gave the help. Um, But I think even more so now as we're moving on and creating even bigger platform. So far, I've had an amazing career and I'm so blessed and so happy. And I hope to have an even more of an amazing career. But yeah, I'm just so fortunate. And I want to use my voice, right? I just I feel like it's my responsibility to do something for it. You know, I think for elite athletes, you know, there's so many before that came before me that have used their voice. And I I thank them for that because they really talked about all the problems. I think it was the games in Atlanta where they had to take taxi cabs and they weren't allowed to like sleep at the Paralympic village. I mean, we've come such a long way. You know, I know that a few of my former Team USA Paralympic athletes were were part of that and saying that's not right. So, yeah, I think it's really important to use to use your voice. 
Was it London 2012? I mean, listen, I'm sat here right now near London. London 2012 was the first Paralympics I worked on. So I'm going to be slightly biased, I guess. But was London 2012 genuinely the Paralympics where things changed a bit and suddenly the profile and the setup of the games and everything became on a par with the Olympics? Yes, definitely. I think so, because just the whole attitude shift, right? The whole culture kind of like shifted. So they made sure that whenever we talked about the Olympics or the Paralympics was involved, the banners were next to each other, right? So it kind of like set the stage. And we want to make sure that we continue that movement, right? We don't want to have a great games, bad games, good games, bad games. We don't want that to be the the one highlight. We want to make sure that we keep that whole movement going. And even now, you know, we want to make sure the movement for Paralympics is still happening in London. You know, I don't want the highlight just to be in 2012. I want to make sure all those Paralympic athletes, you know, globally are getting what they need, but they're not. So we want to make sure that we can continue that. And I think this documentary coming out, Rising Phoenix, will will help with that help with that movement as we talk about the history of the Paralympics. And I think when people see it visually in a, in a film, they would be like, wow. And I hope the continuation of the support will happen. And again, the impact of the Rising Phoenix film, I guess, is that it mainstreams the idea of disability rights, but should also help to change perceptions. You are in the film. I've seen it. It's fantastic. You are in it, but you're also a producer on it. So how did that role come about and, and what did it involve for you? Yeah. So four years ago, it was at the Paralympics in Rio. It was my very first time meeting Greg. And this is Greg Nugent, isn't it? The exec producer on the film. Yeah, Greg Nugent. And so we were just talking about like the Paralympics and my experiences and how, you know, there was a great games, not so good games. You know, people didn't really know about it. We just, you know, just were talking and we were discussing like how people kind of know about the Paralympics, but they don't really know, no. It, it's a story that's never been told. And so Greg was like, it should be a movie. And I was like, yes, yes, it should be. You are correct on that. And he was like, no, I'm serious. And I was like, me too. <laughs> like <laughs> somebody has to do it. And he was just like, well, why don't I just do it? And I was like, okay. <laughs> it was such a like magical thinking, right? It just came from this one idea. Everything felt so magical about it. And four years later, here we are. Two years ago, I met the team the directors of the film. And it's been amazing. And my role as a producer was to stay true to the whole movement. So I shared my story with the directors and I told them what I went through as a young disabled person. And even as a disabled person, being a woman, my journey through the Paralympics and what I hope for and where we are kind of stuck globally and how people kind of view people with disabilities and kind of like the direction I want the film like to go. And, and then we talked about, you know, hiring people with disabilities. And, you know, I said, that's a problem. That's a problem in the United States. And that's a problem globally. So I wanted to make sure that everyone stayed true to their word that, 
if we were going to hire people with disabilities, that we were going to hire people with disabilities. So 16% of the people who worked on the film had a disability. And this was an amazing process because, you know, the directors never worked with a disabled person before. So they learned a lot and they learned, you know, the struggles that like finding accessible buildings so that the person can get there, right? An accessible route. You know, there's so many things that we have to go through, you know, whether if it's finding accessible buses or accessible, you know, taxis or transportation. And we shouldn't have to hunt to find disabled people to work in film production. So I really hope that that kind of set a change. You know, I really hope that it sets a change for Hollywood in the, in the U.S. And I really hope it sets the change for the British film industry and that it pushed this movement saying, yes, we can hire people with disabilities to work on film production. Yes, we can have people with disabilities be actors and actresses and produce this beautiful film. So... So that was really cool. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And the everyone's so great. And we were honest and open with each other, right? And to kind of pinpoint like, I like this, I don't like that. <laughs> I'm very picky. So I had to say, okay, boys, like we need to redo this ending. And I don't know how many times we need to redo this ending, but we will redo it. <laughs> and we are not going to have it out there until we redo this. So, and they, you know, they... They took my advice, which was awesome. <laughs> so it was really cool to see the different stages and then the music added into it. I think it's really beautiful. I think every athlete is captured so elegantly. And I say elegant, like not only like beautiful, but like strong, right? And the composure of how they capture these athletes is just quite amazing with the angles and the music. And the drama, it, it's great. I'm think I'm thinking you've got a big year ahead next year. I'm thinking Oscars in what February, and then Tokyo Paralympics in August. Does that sound good? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're hoping for. Now I know one of your great rivals and friends over the years in the Paralympic sphere has been this lady. We have a little surprise for you, Tatiana. Listen to this. Every time I think about Tatiana. I cannot help but remember when I met her, she was uh, still a young girl, but already she had a great talent, a great potential. She had an amazing passion for the sport and was very determined. I remember her asking tons of questions and getting better and better and better. And so it was a great pleasure to see how she got faster, stronger, and remained an amazing individual. Now, I'm hoping you can identify that lady for us, Tatiana. <laughs> oh, I love Chantal. Yes, Chantal is my my big Paralympic hero. I mean, <laughs> she did everything, right? She did something really unheard of at the time, too. She did the 100 meter through the 1500, which back then was you don't cross over like that, right? Well, I have a stat for you actually on this front because that was Chantelle Petitclerc, the great um, Canadian Paralympian who who was probably sort of slightly before you and then you were alongside each other through the 2000s. But Chantelle has 
21 summer Paralympic medals and you have 16 yes. summer Paralympic medals. So I'm thinking Tokyo... I've got a long you must, way to go. You, well, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking this is a bit of a sort of Jack Nicholas Tiger Woods situation where you are hot on her heels. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chantal is an amazing, amazing person. I mean, she still is. Growing up, I mean, she was like, for me, I just, exactly what she said, I just eyeballed everything she did because, I mean, she was so vocal as a Canadian Paralympic athlete and she's, she's done so much for her country. And so I was like, wow, like if she can do this, like I want to do this right back. I idolized her growing up and I always mention her name, but I don't know sometimes if people know it or not. Um, so she's definitely my my Paralympic hero because, I mean, she was so strong in the sport and dominant at every single games and really driven and really focused. And she's a senator now, isn't she, in Canadian politics? Yes. And I, I get the yes. impression from speaking to you that, I mean, I could see you following that same path in the USA. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe like the UN or something. Okay. But I mean, she, yeah, she's, I mean, done so much for her sport and now for disability rights in, in Canada. So she's a great person, a great human. And I probably bothered her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I really, really looked up to her. I was sad when she retired but i mean she stayed in this sport for so long and i hope to do the same it's the final bend it's to Jana mcfadden for the united states three gold medals in london aiming for a fourth here and she's gonna do it surely now they won't catch him mcrory's trying to get up into third place but to Jana mcfadden wins her fourth gold medal in rio I've always marveled at your multi-event capability. I mean, by the time you <laughs> get you. to Rio, we're talking, what, 400 metres, 800 metres, 1,500 metres, a marathon thrown in there for good measure. And I the mean, 100, and the 100. So <laughs> I knew you'd pick up on one I missed. <laughs> yeah. When you arrive in Rio, for example, or I'm sure it will be similar in Tokyo, it must just be nonstop. You can't have any downtime, surely. And, and, and is the same true of your your training schedule when you're at home? I mean, I don't know how you manage to train for so many different events. Yeah, it's, it's been challenging. And I think it's a little tougher as you get older. <laughs> um, but for me, I just love racing. And I just I just take every race for what it is. And I focus, you know, competing on the athletes, the best of the best in the hundred meters. And then all of a sudden I'm lying up at the marathon in the 5,000 and it's the best of the best athletes in those races. So it's really tough. But again, I, I love challenges. So I just say, okay, let's bring on this challenge and, and see where it will take me. What a story, Tatiana McFadden. She has got an extraordinary extraordinary record of achievement and both her biological mothers and adopted mothers are here to witness once again her extraordinary ability. Tatiana McFadden is an unbelievable spirit of the Paralympics and spirit of these whole games. I just want to ask you about one more of your medals because the medal I find most impressive and most fascinating is your winter Paralympic silver in cross-country skiing because you won that silver in Sochi, Russia, in front of Nina, your birth mother. She was in the crowd and I believe you actually targeted those games specifically for that to, to be able to happen. So 
So sum that up for us, because that must have been in, in all the things you've done, that must have been just an amazing moment for you and the whole family. It was. So when I found out that the games were going to be in Sochi, I was so excited. I went into like my mom's office and I was like, oh my gosh, do you know where the next games are going to be? And she was like, yes, it's going to be in, it's the winter games. It's going to be in Sochi. And I was like, yes, like I, I think that's awesome and amazing. It's going to be back in Russia. How cool is that? And she was like, well, what are you thinking? Like, do you want to commentate for the NBC? Like, what do you, what are you thinking? And I was like, no, even better. I was like, I want to go as an athlete. And she was like, oh my. And I was like, yes, I really put a lot of thought into this. And I was like, cross country skiing. And she was like, okay, it's an endurance sport and I'm an endurance athlete. I just have to learn technique. <laughs> and my God, it was, yes. I didn't know what I was getting myself into at the time. So it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I was like struggling with the fact that like time doesn't really exist. You know, it's not like track where time matters. So I had a hard time getting used to that. And technique was the hardest thing to learn. I couldn't muscle it, right? It was more like a finesse. Like finesse. It was very artsy looking and um, you just used more of your core than your arms. So it was very hard, very hard thing for me to learn. And um, I really struggled a lot, actually. You had to like turn the page to see my results. I was that bad. I was 20th place or something like that. And so I thought, oh my goodness, my chances for these games are not going to be good. And, you know, it was actually kind of hard for me. A lot of people told me, why don't you just go back to your summer sport? Like, why are you trying to do winter? You know, just like go back and get ready for Rio. And I thought, nope. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to I'm going to try this thing one more time. You know, it took my last World Cup right before we left to go to Sochi to make a final in the cross country sprint and that led me to be on on the team. It was just unbelievable to make the team. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I did it. I am making this dream happen." And it was always it was always my dream as a young child to have my birth family and my adoptive family at one competition. And I did it. You should have seen how many people's jaw dropped when I won that cross country sprint medal. Nobody thought I would win it. And but inside me, I believed in myself and my family believed in me. And that's all that mattered. You know, I didn't care about what other people thought and my purpose was just my family. So it was a fulfilling experience and something that I'll never forget. Just briefly on, on Tokyo, are you going for the full range of events again? Is it too early to say? I'm hoping. So right now I'm just trying to stay, you know, healthy, stay positive, just continue the training that we can do. You know, it's so unpredictable this year. So we don't really know if things are going to be open again and closed again. Some things are open, some things are closed. So I'm just, you know, taking it day by day and I hope to do the full range in Tokyo. And just finally, Tatiana, you've seen an incredible amount of change in the Paralympic movement over your 16-year career. It's about more than just sport now, isn't it? It's trying to create a more inclusive world and empower social transformation. 
So how much more development do you think there can be in the Paralympics? Oh, I think we're just getting started. I think with this film, it's going to help it even more. I think it's a perfect time for this film because we're we're in a pandemic so um and more people are working from home so i think people will actually take the time to watch it not many people are traveling right now so it's actually like really perfect and then it'll be the one year out to the paralympics so it's a perfect time for that growth and education right there and i think right now also we're finding ways to even stay more in touch globally through social media through ways to talking online sharing our stories talking about the Paralympics. So I think it's really important to use this time to to provide that growth in education. I see it rising in the future and I hope for for it to be on TV and for people to kind of latch on and watch it. And yeah, it's exciting. You know, I just take it day by day, race by race, and then just continuing to be that voice. Well, you are somebody who has just constantly defied people's expectations and constantly made a change in so many different areas of your life. So I think we're all fascinated to see what's next for uh, Tatiana McFadden, but the Oscars will be a decent start. Thank you so much for your time today, Tatiana. It's been uh, fantastic to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you as well. It's great to uh, speak with you and thank you for having me on. How can you listen to Tatiana McFadden there and not be inspired to go out and make a change in your own life or perhaps to the lives of others? She's somebody I've wanted to speak to for a really long time and it was a great pleasure to hear her story in her own words. We'd really love it if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Next week, I'll be talking to a modern day Greek hero, Greg Polychronidis, one of the best boccia players in the world. If you've not heard of Boccia, then Greg will fill in the blanks, as well as reflecting on a career of highs and lows, explaining how he's bounced back from disappointments to finally reach his goals. Speak to you next week.